Well, we have been thinking these last weeks um, about what it means to follow Jesus uh, in terms of discipleship. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea of discipleship as uh, the place of having a message, like Jorge spoke of, a message of good news and hope in difficult situations. Uh, last week, Matt spoke really brilliantly about the place of what it means to be a good neighbor to people. Um, and today, I want to talk about worship with you, to be people of worship. But I'm going to do it through a kind of interesting lens, an interesting journey. I'm actually going to journey by talking about anxiety, which I know is something we feel, many of us, very well. Um, but before we get to that, um, I'm always reminded when I tell people that I live in LA, um, they, they always have the same question, and maybe you get this question too. It's like, how many famous people have you met this week? Anyone ever had that question? Yeah. I have to gently remind people that I don't tend to bump into A-listers in the grocery outlet in Arcadia. Uh, it's not... <laughs> It's not, not normal, um, but I have heard some pretty great stories, and I think my favorite, my favorite ever story was from one of the uh, old worship pastors in the Vintage Network, and he used to live in a tiny little house above the Malibu, above Malibu, up in the hills there, and one day as he was taking his trash out, he was walking down his driveway with trash sacks in each hand, uh, he saw an entourage of people walking up his driveway towards him, and at the head of the group of people was a very famous A-list pop singer who you would all know very well, um, and she stopped in front of my friend and said, I was driving past and your house looked so small and lovely that I felt like I needed a tour can I come in? Um, and so she walked straight past my friend in through his front door and in, welcomed herself in to say hello to his wife and his kids. Uh, apparently she thought his house was absolutely lovely before she left again to go to wherever she was going next. Like my friend's a pretty chill guy, but I can imagine the sheer anxiety of seeing one of the most famous people in the world walking up your driveway towards your home. Anxiety <laughs> comes in all shapes and sizes, and it is very uh, real. And so we're going to read our passage this morning, which is the next bit of Luke's gospel, which comes from Luke uh, 10, 38 to 42. So if you've got your Bibles, um, we're going to read it, and Nira's going to race up here, and she's going to read it for us. Luke 10, 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. So it's a famous little story. There are two sisters, and they actually have a brother called Lazarus as well. And Jesus has been traveling throughout the region. He's been stopping off at different towns and villages. And one day, Jesus arrives at this little village, and not just at this little village, but at this particular home where the family live. And cultural context, cultural societal like pressure would have said that the 
the situation dictated that the guests should be welcomed in and that the women in the house should all rally around to put on a feast of a meal, not just for Jesus as the guest of honor, but also for all of his traveling companions. You can imagine, I think, from the perspective of Martha, exactly why she feels stressed out and anxious, as we just read. Like the king of the universe has just turned up at her house for dinner. You can imagine, Martha, can't you, like racing around madly, like desperately thinking, have we got enough food? Is everyone going to be all right? What's everyone going to drink? Who's going to sit next to who? How's it all going to work out? Like, does anyone have any dietary intolerances that we have to deal with today? Like, this is a really serious deal. Will he like the food? Will he not? Like, well, how's this going to work out? Like, Martha, it says, is seriously anxious. And not just anxious in a general sense. It, one translation says she was frantic. Fretting and fussing. And for, for Martha, that sense of anxiety is made significantly worse because her sister, and I feel like it should be her younger sister. I don't know if it actually is her younger sister. I just have a stereotype, which is unfair in my mind, is just sitting there. She's just sitting there as Martha's like racing around trying desperately to cook food for all these people who have arrived at her house. Like Mary is just sitting in the midst of the circle by Jesus' feet, taking it all in. It makes Martha, it seems, so angry that she calls out to Jesus, the guest of honor. She says, Lord, don't you care? Not generally a good way to open your sentence with the king of the universe. Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. This is pretty angry. It's pretty forthright. And I totally appreciate it because it's probably what I would have said too. Like, why am I doing all the work? Why is all this on my shoulders? Why do I have to fix everything? Why is my sister doing absolutely nothing? That's totally unfair. Maybe on this Thanksgiving week, you've sensed something of the unfairness or the anxiety of trying to produce food for many different people in your home. What Martha does seems to me to be very proportional. I'll let you into secret, like I have a job which means putting on a lot of events, but I find it stressful. I find it stressful when everything has to be just right. So let's, let's talk about it for a minute. Let's drill in to talk about how Martha feels and why she does and even what it means to be anxious. Because I feel like anxiety is one of those things we never talk about in churches. It's one of those taboos that must be for people who don't have enough faith or don't believe enough in some things. Now, I don't think any of that is true. And I will say I'm not a medical professional like Jorge. I'm not a neuropsychologist like some of the others of you in this room who I got to speak to this week about this topic. But I know that this is a topic that is so real and prevalent in our society and it's real in, in our community. So let's talk anxiety. Let's be brave for a minute. So the American Psychological Association says anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tensions, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. Anxiety can take over our lives. I put a little thing on the WhatsApp group. I don't know if you saw it this week. We asked you like, what anxiety feels like to you. Um, and actually, we got a little diagram which the survey thing made for us of all the different words. I don't know if you can see it on the screen. They're kind of small words. What does anxiety feel like to you? There are words up there like fear of the future, feelings of dread, frantic thoughts, imploding thoughts, chest being hollow, racing thoughts, 
I, I got so many responses, I, I can't even begin to read them out, but I just wanted to read you a few of what people said about what anxiety feels like for them in this church. It means being anxious and unsettled, frustrated with uncertainty. It means uncontrollable and unwarranted feelings of dread and fear. At times I feel like I'm tied up with a straitjacket because my hands are tied up and I'm unable to do anything with the current situation. It feels like the world is closing in on me and I might just die. But no one seems to understand because all they can see is a normal looking person saying I have anxiety. And she sat almost close to tears this week as I read through like response after response of people even our own community who live with anxiety, it seems, all, all the time. And sometimes I do too. For some of us, anxiety is something that hits in specific moments and specific situations. For others, it's almost a constant reality, something we live with every single day. For some, it's linked to particular things. Others, it's a generic feeling that we have all the time. For some of us, it, it stops us in our tracks. It stops us engaging. It stops us traveling or going to particular places and doing particular things. For others, it's actually the very fuel that drives us along the road. I think Martha would fit into this category, someone who cannot settle, cannot sleep, cannot sit. The king of the universe has just showed up to her house and she can do nothing other than fret and run round as quickly as possible. Anxiety sucks and it's real and you're not the only one. A little study before um, this, earlier in this year showed, in fact, it was a very big study, so that in the US, about a third of adults experience symptoms of anxiety regularly. And interestingly, that number is not much less than it was at the height of the pandemic. If you are within 80 to 25, it's actually that number rises to about half of all young adults feel regular symptoms of anxiety. It's a real thing. And you're not alone. We see you. And we feel it too. But then there's Mary. Mary, the sister. Everything is going on all around her, all the time, all the noise, all the hubbub, all the people, all the preparations. And she's just sitting there. She's just sitting there. She's sitting in the middle of it at Jesus' feet, chilling, like with this sense of like adoration, taking it all in, which it seems like this sense of gratitude. I just get to be here with the king of the universe. I find the picture like mind-bendingly complicated and challenging. As someone who is naturally quite a lot Martha and not a lot Mary, there's a lot in me that wants to shout out, what are you doing? <laughs> Can you just get on with some activity, please? There are things that need to be done here. But yet, as you've maybe heard the passage this morning, like the message is kind of clear. Be more Mary. <laughs> be more Mary. How do you do that? Would you even want to be more Mary? What's in it for you anyway? Why should we try and be less Martha and more Mary? Well, it seems like part of the answer to that is because the life we are called to live is actually supposed to center around the word gratitude. The word gratitude. Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. Thanks, Paul. Clearly doesn't struggle with anxiety. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is there some sort of verse, for lo- which is like some lofty spiritual verse for people who don't really struggle with this area, or is thing here for us? Well, as I started to dig into the world of anxiety this week and spoke to some of the professionals in our community, one thing I found which was fascinating is that this Bible that we have that was supposedly written by humans thousands of years ago teaches us much about modern science, which are things that scientists are just discovering to be true today. And one of those things that scientists are discovering is that actually gratitude and anxiety can't exist in the same space at the same time. I got my resident clinical neuropsychologist to help me write this. This is what they said. Anxiety, fear, worry, and the brain gang up on us and train us to be on the lookout for negativity and for problems. We find them, we react to them anxiously because our brain is conditioned that way. It's not intentional, rather it's a habit that's formed without us being aware until anxiety symptoms become prominent and bothersome. We become geared towards a fight or a flight response. Gratitude, however, works in a similar but completely opposite fashion. Gratitude slows us down. It limits the flow of cortisol to our brains. It reduces anxiety, depression too, in part by optimizing the functioning of the same autonomic nervous system, I didn't know what that was, as well as those same neurotransmitters involved in anxiety. Basically, the brain cannot respond to anxiety and gratitude at the same time. It has to choose one or the other. We can feel anxious or other states, or we can feel grateful and all the positive emotions, but we can't do both at once. Fascinating. You can't actually be Mary and Martha at the same time. You know, whilst anxiety, or at least for me, becomes sort of fixated on the here and the now, or the things that are immediately in front of us, like it looks at them with that sense of underlying fear or dread, it, it provokes the fear or flight response in us. Gratitude is different. Gratitude rewires our brain, if you want to say it like that, to hone in instead on the good that's all around us in any situation. But like gratitude looks at our situations, whether they're 99% bad or they're 99% good, and it says there will always be something. There's always going to be something for us to be thankful for. Charlotte Bronte. She says, gratitude is the divine emotion. It fills the heart, but not to bursting. bursting. It warms it, but not to fever. Gratitude, and maybe you've experienced it over this Thanksgiving week, is actually extremely powerful. It has incredible purpose. And so I discovered a few little tips, which I'm going to put on the screen they're just little tidbits. They're not life hacks. Sadly, there's no life hack to anxiety as far as I'm aware. But these are just some things that people offered that you can do to build gratitude into your life. Number one, um, find beauty and pause simply to appreciate it. Like keep a gratitude journal, adding quick notes about your day every single day. Number two, pair deep breathing with visualizing an image of something for which you're glad. Number three, write little notes of appreciation of others and leave them where people will find them. Feel free to take a picture if you want these. 
Acknowledge anxious thoughts and add, and right now, I appreciate. Number five, give yourself permission to be grateful rather than letting worry push it away. Appreciate things about yourself. Throughout the day, just pause briefly and appreciate something in that moment. It strikes me that gratitude has like power. I remember when I was an undergrad one day, um, I was very anxious about something, and I can't remember now what it was. I think maybe I was, had issues with a girl, or I was not done my assignment, or there was some money issue, I can't remember, but I remember that I couldn't really concentrate. So I decided to go for a walk one afternoon, and my campus was in an area of countryside, and so I got on one of these kind of bumpy dirt tracks. It was kind of muddy, and there were puddles, and there were rocks, and, and my brain was like churning and churning away, you know, as you do. You're like, what did I say? Did I say the right thing? Who was I supposed to talk to? How did that conversation go? Did people understand me correctly? What am I going to say when I next see that person? How am I going to do it? And I just kept walking, and I kept walking, and I kept walking for what seemed like forever, but was probably about half an hour. And as I walked, because the track was bumpy and I didn't want to trip over, I had my eyes firmly fixed down at my feet and the few yards ahead of me. Until about after that half an hour, I eventually sort of stopped in the road to pray. And as I started to pray, I felt like the Lord just simply say, like, Ben, look up, look up. And for the first time in half an hour, I did like put my eyes up from my own feet And I realized I wasn't in the town anymore. I was actually right out in the middle of the countryside. I'd walked out into the middle of a massive field. And as I looked up, suddenly I wasn't looking at the rocky path in front of me. I was looking at trees, listening to birds sing. The sun was improbably shining down on that English field as it never does. I realized that actually God say, if you look around, you always see like good things that I've provided in the middle of it. That's, in a way, I think what gratitude does. It removes our gaze from our feet and all that's immediately in front and around us to looking around and recognizing that there's actually good everywhere. Gratitude's really powerful. But actually, I don't think gratitude is the answer to all of life's problems. I don't, in fact, even think that gratitude is the total answer to what Jesus has to say to us for those of us who battle with anxiety. Because in a way, what what gratitude does is it anchors ourselves to situation, to ability, to circumstance. However good or however bad those circumstances are, as we probably all know, like they are quite fleeting. I sat with some friends uh, a few weeks ago and I sat, we were sitting in a circle, and I, and I just sat there and said, I'm so grateful for, and I named about 10 amazing things that were true in my life. Within 20 minutes of finishing that conversation, I received a phone call of really annoying bad news. Everything that I'd felt, everything that I'd cling to seemed completely helpless and a million miles away at that point. It's not that gratitude isn't good, it's just that it, it seems to be somewhat transient, doesn't it? Maybe even on Thanksgiving, if you have that family tradition where you speak out thankful words that you have, I wonder how you feel a few days on now that the turkey is passing through your system and life has restarted. 
So what is like the biblical answer? What does Jesus actually have to teach us if it's not just gratitude? Well, it seems like it's more than gratitude. And the more than gratitude that the Bible gives us is worship. It's worship. You see, because whilst gratitude ties to circumstances that move, worship anchors ourselves to a person who never changes. A person who never changes. Gratitude is not it's about circumstance. Worship is about the one who holds the circumstances in his hands. And it's very different. It's very different. So what, what's worship then? Well, at its very core, worship is literally to ascribe high worth, proper worth to someone or something. I don't suggest worshipping your spouse. It's not quite how it's supposed to work. But if I was to take that journey of worship, it would start by saying, I recognize something about my beautiful wife, Laura. Like, I recognize that she is beautiful and kind and caring and lovely and self-defacing and just so many things that I would never say from a stage, and particularly in front of her mother, who's sitting on the front row today. Like, <laughs> like it notices something and it puts it in a high position in the middle of life. But it's more than that, right? Worship doesn't just recognize something, but it also chooses to respond to that thing and to make changes about life. And when in church we talk about worshiping God, that's what we're talking about, right? Worship has these three movements. The first one is that worship starts with a revelation of who God is and what's going on. Right? Martha, she's like charging around, social expectation on her shoulder, upbringing, thinking that the most important thing that can possibly happen in the moment is that everybody gets lunch. And yet the genius, surprisingly, of Mary is that she realizes the most important thing in the room is not lunch, but it's encounter with the creator of the universe. There she is, just listening, enjoying, delighting, taking it all in, slowing down being a disciple. Worship is the same. Worship starts with a revelation of what's real, of who's real, of what's really going on around here. You see, when we worship, we're actually firstly asking for a revelation of the goodness of who God is. We're asking God to show us about the truth about who he is. When we worship, actually, this is what happens to me. I start to realize that there is someone who is infinitely big and powerful and capable and caring and good and engaged and loving and helpful and wise and created who holds this whole thing together. You know the kid's song? He's got the whole world in his hands. And when I start to realize that, this is what my heart says. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. Not because I'm capable, or not even because the outlook looks possible or even positive today, but it's going to be okay because I am not alone and he is capable. Amen? He is capable. When we worship, it actually starts by bowing down and asking God to reveal the enormity of who he is. I mean, I just I love and I hate at the same time the fact that Mary is just sitting there. 
bowed at his feet, waiting, watching. I wonder when the last time was that you just sat at Jesus' feet? When was the last time that you stopped and you listened and you asked God to reveal the truth of what he is? Or instead, were you, like I am sometimes, just like onwardly driven to just get the next thing done so that hopefully you can relax at the end of it? When we worship, we ask God for a revelation and we have to stop in order to get it in the first place. So worship is a revelation. But worship also demands a response. There's another uh, encounter where Mary and Martha are having a meal with Jesus. Uh, it's in John chapter 12. And it plays out exactly as you would expect. right? Martha is cooking the food. Mary is sitting on the ground doing not very much. And their brother Lazarus is there too. But the detail that's different in John 12 at this encounter is that Mary takes out this family heirloom of perfume. Think about like duty-free at LAX, like times a million. It's like the most expensive thing that the family owns. This pot of nard, expensive perfume, and she takes it as Jesus is speaking, and she just starts pouring it all over Jesus' feet and onto the ground. As someone who doesn't like the sound of feet very much, I don't really understand this picture, if I'm honest, but it is deeply symbolic. It's deeply sacrificial. It's a, a picture of extravagant, costly, abundant worship. That's what worship is. Worship demands a response and not a little one, but a proportionate one to the revelation we've received. There's like another story um, in 2 Samuel 24, and King David is like this very famous king, very wealthy. And Israel's going through this very intense time in its history, and so King David wants to stop and worship God in the midst of it. And so he has this wealthy landowner guy called Arana, and Arana's like, cool, I've got all the crops that you need for a burnt offering, I've got everything you need, just come round and we'll do it. And King David, though, famously says in 2 Samuel 24, he's like, no, like, I will not worship God with that which costs me nothing. Like, it's not worship if it doesn't cost something. It's not a response if it doesn't require something of me. When we talk about worship, we always talk about it in some way as an activity. It's described as an activity. You know, that's why we say on Sunday mornings, like, would you show up at 10? Would you come and get coffee in your system? Would you get some donuts to fuel you? Would you check your kids in? Would you park your car in the car park, which will be open next week without charging you for things? Like, will you come and be here for 10.30? Because when the countdown finishes, guess what? We're going to worship God together. And the reason you know, we have Tom and the others here is, is not to entertain us, not to provide some backing music for us to welcome us. Like, they're here to lead the charge into worship. They're here to say, let's do this together, guys. Let's give of our best because he's worth it. Let's show up. Let's lean in. Now, I know that like, for some of us, singing and you know, putting our hands in the air and all those kind of things is a bit beyond our comfort levels. But I just want to remind you that this is kind of the biblical worship that you read about. If you look in the Psalms alone, here's just a few things you can see. Psalm 34, worship by speaking. 
Psalm 27, shout. Psalm 47, 6, sing. Psalm 95, bow down. Psalm 119, stand. Psalm 149, dance. Psalm 33, play instruments. Psalm 47, clap. Psalm 63, lift your hands. These are just some of the like, examples of what worship is supposed to look like. Because why? Because it's not about us. It's not about whether we like the song or we don't like the song. Whether or not the band are good or the band are not good. It's not about any of those things. It's about us saying, God, you are good. God, you are in charge. Like Worship is actually a defiant war cry in the midst of things like anxiety. It's not meant just to make us feel better. It's like us shouting out to the gods of materialism and ego and pride and materialism and image and success. It's like, no, no, you don't get to have the last laugh. You don't get to call the shots. You don't get to be in charge because God is. That's what worship is supposed to be about. And the world knows about worship. It might not know about worshiping God like we do, but just in case you think that like singing loudly and putting your hands in the air is some weird trait of the charismatic renewal that should be retired, let me just show you for a second what happens at the Rose Bowl when 60,000 people gather with a non-Christian artist to sing. This is what it looks like. It was, it was a good night. It was a good night. The world knows how to worship. Do we, are we prepared to look as undignified as that in the way that we worship without flashy wristbands? Worship is not about soppy feelings. It is a defiant war cry amidst all of the midst and the brokenness of the world, which says God is in charge of us. That is reality. So worship requires a response But also, worship helps us to define reality by setting up a new orbit. Worship helps us to orbit a different reality. Greg Beale, I think he really wisely and correctly points out that you are what you worship. You are what you worship. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. And we all worship something, right? That is a simple truth of life. Everybody worships something. The late novelist David Foster Wallace, he says this. It's a long quote, but it's genius. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual style thing to worship is that pretty much everything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and they will always leave you feeling ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. 
It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. You know, if I feel a certain way about my lovely wife, if I feel it in my heart, even if I speak it out, actually, it becomes true not even when it's spoken. It becomes true when it's acted upon. If I really love her, then you would probably rightly expect that my bank account and my schedule, the choices that I make, have some reference to her in daily life. If they didn't, you would probably have a really good reason to ask if I really love her. And the same is true of God. When when we come at worship, whether it's from that place of peace or it's from the place of anxiety, the invitation is to do something with what we believe to be true. I, um, I love being a charismatic. I've grown up in the charismatic church. I believe today you know, that God speaks and he moves and he acts. And I love that when we gather, there's power in that. But I'll be honest, one of the problems of our charismatic church is that we've often turned worship into this thing we do for three or four songs on a Sunday morning when we get an amazing moment of encounter and then we go off and have lunch and forget all about it. That's been kind of how it's worked. But worship is supposed to be more than that. Because worship actually chooses to orbit a different reality. Not ourselves. Not even our own situations. Not even our own feelings. But actually to orbit him. Because he's permanent. Because he's good. Because he's unfailing. Because he won't let us down. Because he has a good plan. Like the journey of worship is actually a journey towards becoming. To anchoring to a different reality not around ourselves or our career or our freedom or our finances or our families, but actually choosing to stop and worship him. Now, of course, like the, that's choice. Ultimately, it's choice, isn't it? It's not feeling. It's the actual choices that we make every single moment of every day. And we can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. We actually have to build rhythms and spiritual practices into our lives to make that possible. Like in, from January, actually, all the way through Easter, we're joining John Mark Comer's team to do a whole series on spiritual disciplines and practices because we realize you've got to like bake this stuff into your life if you want it to show up in your moment of most need during the week. But we are invited to radically change the way that we live to be orbiting around God. And it's not that I think if we do that, we will instantly always feel better and we'll never have anxious moments. Anxiety is something that some of us have had to contend with and realize that we will have for a long period of of our life. But the invitation is to, despite how we feel, to choose to live to a new story. This is Colossians 2. Just So then, just as you received Christ, continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So as I close, I I wonder this week what it might look like to choose worship even in the midst of fear or pain or uncertainty or anxiety. Because just look finally with me at what Jesus says to Martha. Martha. 
in verse 41. He says, Martha, Martha, which is a kind and caring response. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I wonder, church, this week, how could you choose the one thing? How could you choose the one? In the midst of the stress and the anxiety and the job lists and the things of performance and the grades you've got to achieve and everything else, how could you just choose one, which is to be with Jesus, to be with him? And so we're going to respond together. And I'm just going to invite you um, just to take a comfortable position for a minute. I know they're pews. Just as much as you can, take a comfortable position, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit just to gently move amongst us. And then before we sing, we're actually going to listen to a spoken word piece by one of our congregation with some incredible words of scripture which we can receive for our own hearts. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Even if right now, Lord, our hearts are restless and thinking about a hundred different things, right now, may we choose the one thing. Come, Holy Spirit. And in this moment, Lord, would you reorientate our lives? toward worship. Would you lift our eyes, not just from our feet and our immediate surroundings to the ones that are out there, but would you lift our eyes towards heaven, towards eternity, towards the one who made the heavens and the earth, who holds it all in the palm of his hands. Come, Holy Spirit. For the Lord says, I have chosen you and have not forgotten you. So do not fear anything, for I am with you. Do not be distressed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will guide you along unfamiliar paths. I will turn darkness into light ahead of you and make the rough places into level ground. I have made you 
and I will uphold you. I will sustain you and I will save you. For I alone am God and there is no other. What I have spoken, that will I bring into being. What I have planned, that will I assuredly accomplish. I will finish what I have begun in you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, the one who has compassion on you. And so we're going to respond, and Tom is going to lead us in worship. So if you're able to stand, uh, feel free to do that. But the Prayer Ministry team will also be here along the front. And if you'd value someone to pray with you, um, particularly if you have that battle somewhere inside you, uh, health, emotions, anxiety, fear, depression, anything, even vaguely close to that, particularly they'd love to pray with you, but let's respond um, in singing.